0: You didn't have a Sunday where you existed that you weren't in church with stained glass or someone walking down the aisle swinging incense as they went. And for all of us, um, we're from different places, different spaces, different backgrounds. Now, the significance of that is we live in a culture, we live in a kind of a world where our differences could not be more polarizing. That is to say, over the last, you know, who knows if it's a decade or two decades or three decades, however long it's been going on, we live in a world today where the more different we are, the less likely we are to be friends. The more different we are, the less likely we are to get along. The more different we are, the more polarized we are from each other. In other words, the more different we are religiously, the more different we are socially, the more different we are politically, economically, familially, the more different we are socioeconomically and ethnically, the more likely we are. To be separated and not live in unity with one another. And that's not like necessarily an indictment on culture because if we're being honest, the church is perhaps the worst at this. Churches, in the name of Jesus, have split because a group of people caught together and they couldn't decide, should we have the red carpet or the blue carpet? And half the red folk carpet said, we want red. And half the blue folk carpet said, we want blue. And the red people won out. And if the red people said, fine, since y'all won out, then all the blue folks, we're going to go start our own church. And I wish that was a lie. But churches have split because of carpet color. So we decided we're just not going to have carpet, you know? <laughs> Keep our church together. Just kidding. But legitimately, churches, when we split over all kinds of, I mean, the littlest detail, the littlest thing that happens, we split. And what's fascinating is as you read the Gospels, one of Jesus' last prayers, Jesus' last 24 hours on earth, as he's talking to his disciples, in fact, that as he's praying for not only his disciples, but the ones who will believe from his message. This is his prayer. Father, I pray that they may be one. As you are in me, and as I am in you, may they be one in us. In other words... The unity and the harmony that connects and describes the oneness and essence of the Father and the Son ought to describe you and me. And unfortunately, it couldn't be further from the reality. And so what I want to talk about is how in the world do we live in unity, specifically in our church. If you're a believer, if you have given your life to Jesus... How in the world do we live in unity with each other when we have people from extraordinarily different perspectives? In fact, the first time kind of version of this talk, it was a really brief um, kind of highlight to the end of one of our leadership meetings, at the, at kind of the dawn after the election happened, and there was you know kind of this general political tension that this is what I think, and this is what they think, and I won, and you lost, and you won, and I lost, and you know however it, however it plays on your side. And I just sensed a tension within our leadership group, and I said, hey, 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 let's talk about this. One of the most divisive things, one of the ways that that constantly um, a good church, a gospel movement can be thwarted, can be thrown off kilter, is through division. And division almost always happens through deep-seated and deeply held beliefs. And so as people who believe differently, who think differently, how should we live with one another in a world that says if we're different, then we are opposites. And in fact, if we're real different, I'm just going to unfriend you the more I find out how indifferent we are. So, thankfully, we're not the first people to go through this. In the book of Romans, Paul addresses the early church who was going through a similar situation. Um, In the book of Romans, they were kind of had the church had started, and as the church was going forward, the movement of God was going forward, people were giving their life to Jesus. Um, There were two primary groups of people there was the jewish group and the jewish group had had the entire old testament they were kind of the nation of israel they were the seed of abraham and they had tons and tons and tons and tons of lineage of religious lineage behind god now the jews also had this other group of people who were the gentiles The Gentiles were basically everybody who wasn't Jewish. So extraordinarily diverse group of people described the Gentiles. All kinds of different religions, lots of pagan religions. Many of them didn't believe in one God before. They believed in a lot of gods. But when the church happened, this message of God sending his one and only son into the earth, or to the earth, to die for us, that we could be right with God, all of a sudden spread like wildfire in a really, really, really different group and religiously backed people came together, and there was friction. And Paul, in Romans chapter 14, addresses some of the friction of the early church, and in doing so, gives us a parameter for how we ought to act as one body who doesn't have the same background, who doesn't come from the same ideas, and experiences tension that we believe. The implications of our belief are different. So here's what happens Romans chapter 14, verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, now, pause. This, when he says that, he's going to define who that is. But when he says weak in faith, he means, basically, there was two ideas, there were two thoughts that were going around about what was right and what was wrong. He says, to the ones who are wrong, he describes as weak. So he says, to the ones that are weak in faith, or as for the ones who are weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. In other words, when you disagree with someone and you think you're right, I want you to make space for that person, but not to prove that you're right. See, most of us, if we talk to somebody who thinks differently than we do, the point of our conversation with them, the point of inviting them in, is to tell them what we think and that we're right and that they're wrong. Now, here's a little kind of like secret to this whole sermon. Everybody thinks they're right, okay? If you didn't think you were right, you wouldn't think that. So this whole thing, now here's what's fascinating. Paul's kind of a sneaky guy. We're going to read this in Romans, and we're going to read a little bit in 1 Corinthians towards the end. In both situations, Paul's primary admonishment, Paul's primary correction, and Paul's primary advice is to the strong. Because we all think we're strong. We all think we're right. We all think we know what we're talking about. And so Paul says, okay, so when you think you're right, here's what I want you to do. I want you to engage with that person relationally, but not for the purpose, not for the point of, not for the reason of proving that you're right. Now he spells out the actual controversy they're going through in verse 2. He says this. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Thank you. So the, so the vegetarians in the room, we pray for you today. You know, amen. The church is settled. You know, we, if you're plant-based, you know, good for you. So is, you know, my dog. Anyways, you know, that's not what he's saying at all. Here, here, here was the controversy. Because of their religious kind of background, there was a group of Jewish people who had a strong dietary law. Now, the dietary laws in the Old Testament were by, for the most part, um, to keep the Jewish's natural culture um, and cultural identity, as they would oftentimes be in exile and in foreign control and whatnot. Also to keep them clean in some instances where they didn't really have the best sanitary things. But they had this idea that these meats were clean and these meats were unclean. These meats were clean and these meats were unclean. And if you wanted to be approved of by God, if you wanted to be in God's good grace, then you wouldn't eat particular meats because of their background they saw what they could and could not do but what happened is when Jesus came and Paul's going to clarify this in verse 14 he basically says that everything is now clean you can eat anything there aren't things that are off limits we don't have the kosher dietary laws that they did in the Old Testament that in Christ Christ fulfilled Christ is and now made everything clean but because of their background, they had a difficult time seeing that. Now, the Jewish folks had a very difficult time. The Gentiles got it. They understood, hey, it's clean. It's fine. You can eat whatever. And so in this situation, the Jews who are weak, who don't understand the full implications of the gospel in their life, in their thoughts and in their religious practices, didn't completely understand are the weak and the, and the Gentiles or the strong. And so Paul addresses both of them and he says this. He said, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. In other words, and when you're right, when you realize that you can't eat anything, I don't want you to despise the person who doesn't get it. I don't want you to think down. I don't want you to look down on the person who doesn't get it. In fact, for the other person as well, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God, he says, has welcomed him. Now, you've experienced this. I've experienced this. When there's someone who believes differently than us, believes differently than you, believes differently than me, there's kind of one of two reactions. Reaction one is that we think they're dumb for not getting it. Number two is we judge them because we think that they ought not do that. We oftentimes either look down at or we judge We diminish or we judge. Don't you dare look down at Don't you dare judge because they think different. Because they believe that the essence of their faith, the working out of their faith is different than your implications to your faith. In fact, who are you to pass judgment, verse 4, on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or he falls, and he will upheld, and he will, and he will be upheld. For the Lord is able to make him stand. Now. Pause. What he's not talking about is is areas of sinfulness. He's not talking about, hey, this is one person who's a Christian, another person who's a Christian, this person who's a Christian is obviously in sin. This other person says, hey, don't judge. No, absolutely. By the way, you should judge that person. You should talk to that person. You should in love go to that person. What he's talking about, too, is there are two different people with two different thoughts of how their faith, how they're living for Jesus ought to work out. And he says, come on. You're just a servant, and they're just a servant. And if he is fully committed, if she is fully convinced that that is how their faith ought to be lived out, then who are you to judge how their faith ought to be lived out? Not in rebellion, but in commitment to God. They haven't decided that I'm just going to go do whatever, whenever. No, no. These are people that authentically want to live their entire existence for God. And Paul looks at them and says, come on. Who are you to judge That's between them and their master, not between you and them. You see, in our preferences, we can be so, as a church, as church people, as Christians, judgmental. You think, how in the world could a Christian believe that? You think, how in the world could a Christian do that? It's it's funny, I mean, it's all kinds of different applications to this. Some of us, we were raised in churches where it's like, man, if you don't read the King James Version, you're not reading the Bible. For some of us, if you're, if, if, if you're a Christian and you've ever drunk a sip of alcohol in your life, how in the world could you be a Christian? It's like, well, I didn't want to. The communion, we had to, you know, sheesh. Some, of, you know, some, some churches, you know, kind of take it to the extreme. If you dance... You are a sinner. You know, the rock and roll, that's Satan's music. How dare you? For all of us, you know, we perhaps have had different things. For some of us, it gets a little bit more, you know, critical to to us and to our day and age. How could a Christian think that? Vote for that. Believe that. We judge. We condemn. He goes on to say this. Verse 5, second piece of drama. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another one esteems all days alike. Now, again, here's, here's the, the context. The Jewish folk had forever thought the Sabbath was holy. This is God's day. This is God's appointed day. This is a day that we set apart, and there are only a few things that we can do on on the Sabbath. This is a holy day. The the particular festivals, extremely holy days, and these are the holy days. It says, so some of you guys, from the background that you came into, you have some thoughts about which days are holy, and some of you think that every day is God's, that what happens on Sunday is just as spiritual as what happens on Wednesday at work, which is just as as spiritual as what happens Thursday when you're with your family, or Saturday with your family, or Sunday when you're with your friends. He says, so from backgrounds, there's differences. The Jews, that was really holy. The Gentiles, that was... Everything was holy. Now... We look at that and we think, well, in a New Testament context, we're so removed from that tradition that that seems a little bit silly. This would be like for you. If you're, I mean, if you're a Christian, you've been following Jesus for a long time. And for a long time, how you have grown in your relationship with God, how you have felt oneness with God, is you woke up every morning, you read your Bible, and you prayed. And the next day, all of a sudden, something miraculously happened, and the way that you furthered in depth and grew in depth in your relationship with God was by eating Skittles. Sounds ridiculous, right? We would all gain a lot of weight. We'll just be honest about that one. But there would be something inside of us that would want to wake up in the morning and read and pray because that has always been the expression of the depth or one of the ways that we were able to lean into a relationship with God. And so it came to this holy day, it was very, very, very difficult. And this is what Paul says to them. That each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. In other words, whatever it is that you do, whatever it is that you believe, Not in terms of rebellion from God, but in living wholly, completely for God. You should be fully convinced that this is how God has called you to live. When you have a conviction, when there's a gray area, you should be fully convinced that this is how God wants you to live. Verse 6. The one who observes the day observes in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord. Since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains, by the way, in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us, verse 7, lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live then to the Lord, and if we die, we die then to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again. In other words, he's saying, just be honest. If you were fully living, there's not an area of your life, there's not a segment of your life, there's not a section of your life As Christians, we are called to live our entire lives for God, for Jesus, for the glory of God, for his kingdom to go forward, not for my will to go forward. And again, not in an area of rebellion, but if there's a particular conviction that you have, a gray area perhaps in scripture that you have, a practice perhaps that you have about how you ought to Conduct your family, about how you ought to conduct your business, about how you ought to conduct your nonprofit, about how you ought to conduct yourself in the classroom, about how you ought to conduct yourself maybe with your family or in your fraternity or in your sorority or on your team. You ought to be fully convinced and do it completely for God, not for yourself. Because the hallmark of Christians is our lives are no longer about us, they're about living. For Jesus, who died for us. And who died for both the living and the dead as he finishes that verse. Now, he continues on. We're going to skip down to verse 19. I'm sorry, not verse 19, verse 10. He says, so why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written... As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. And here's why this is so significant. Because essentially what he's saying is, you can judge me and I can judge you. You can judge me and I can judge you. But if we're all living our lives for God, then ultimately you are going to stand before God. I am going to stand before God. And we are going to give an account for our lives. If you're faking it. It's not a sin against me, it's a sin against God, and you're going to stand before God. If I'm faking it, it's not a sin against you, it's a sin against God, and I'm going to stand before God. So if any of us, as we look at the totality of Scripture and are living for ourselves, are justifying things so that we can have what we want and see what we want and read what we want, ultimately, we are going to stand before God. And so if that's what your conviction tells you, man, do it, but be fully convinced of it, because one day we will all stand before God. I'm not going to stand before you, and you're not going to stand before me. The cultural phrase, only God can judge me, should terrify us. It's like, let me get a tattoo of that, and let me wake up frightened every morning that I'm going to stand before the creator of heaven and earth, who is perfect and holy and pure, and if I saw, I would fall over dead because he's that holy, and say, yeah, but he's going to judge me, so I don't have to worry about you. If i got to worry about you, then i got a problem with him. I throw that out there. So, why in the world would we judge each other? If you're fully living for Jesus, no area of your life not turned over to Him. Because I can judge you and you can judge me. But why? I wouldn't tell you because you are between you and God and you're going to have to stand before Him someday so he says in verse 19 here's basically what i want you to do with this so then let us pursue verse 19 what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding and do not for those of you who you know you're right we understand you're right because at this point we're starting to think okay well hold on hold on we're losing sight of this i'm right they're wrong let me just say that again. I'm right, they're wrong. Someone should tell them. So he says, here's what I want you to understand. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. In other words, in your rightness, don't destroy your brother or sister. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is, not, it is good not to eat meat or not drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. In other words, you have the potential. This is, this is, the, this is the danger in this. You have the potential in your rightness to destroy the person who's wrong. You have the the, the potential that because you understand the implications of the gospel fully apply to your life to destroy the faith of someone else because they see your freedom in Christ and it destroys them in the process. He says, it's better for me if I don't eat meat. It's better for me if I don't drink wine than to destroy someone else and destroy their faith. Verse 23 but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats and this is why that's so important because if i have if there's a gray area if i'm not sure if i feel a conviction about it and i eat meat he says but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith it says, let me just tell you, this, even it's even, almost like even if you're not a Christian, this, just this sentence could change your, the trajectory of your life. This is what he says, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. In other words, most of us ask the question or think through the lens of, if it's not right, it's wrong, or if it's not wrong, it's right. If it's not wrong, it's right. Okay, well, it's not wrong, so it's okay for me to do. He says, no, 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 that's not the lens. If it's not from faith, it's sin. Not if it's not wrong and I can do it, then okay, let me just pull the trigger and I feel some hesitations and some hesitancies about it. If it's not from faith, if it's not good, then I'm not going to do it. Not if it's not wrong. Many of us live in an era, in a world, where if it's not wrong, it must be right. And Paul looks and says, no, 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 no. If it's not from faith, then you shouldn't do it. And so for those of us who are strong chapter 15 verse 1 he says so we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves." now when he says bear with what he doesn't mean is put up with the original language as it's phrased means to bear them to carry them to carve out space in your life, for me to carve out space in my life for people who are not like me, who don't think like I think, who don't believe what I believe, who don't act like I act. He's saying, if you're right, your goal is not, by the way, we all think we're right again, your goal is not to simply parse yourself out to where you are with people who are just like you. In fact, I love how he says it, you are obligated, you and I as Christians. Now, again, if you're not a Christian, then you can listen. you're welcome to play along. But if you're a Christian, he says, man, we are obligated to carve out space in our lives, to carve out relational capacity in our lives, to carve out time in our lives, that we would spend time intentionally with people who are not like us, who do not think what we think, who do not act like we act, who do not believe what we believe, who don't talk like we talk, and who don't look like what we look like. He says, we are under obligation to do that. Now, Here's this is there's like 15 things in this thing that are powerful. In fact, I wanted to make this like a four-part series and just walk through this whole chapter, but we're not. So let me just kind of feed you through a fire hose for a second, okay? This is, why this, this is one of the reasons why this is so important, because for you and I, if we don't do this, we all live in isolation. Here's the significance of that, is that for me, if I decide that I'm just going to be with the people who I'm like and I'm going to be narrow-minded about this whole thing, then I live in isolation. The other side of that is we think, well, we're just going to be open-minded about it. This is kind of the world's version of the cure for this thing, is we're going to be open-minded about it and everybody and anybody is right and anybody, everybody's, nobody's wrong. Now, that's not true because Paul says, hey, these people are right and those people are wrong. But in that, what happens is we say everybody's right, but as long as your right doesn't interfere with my right, then we're all just going to be right in our own little sex, in our own little group. Again, we float towards isolation. Paul says when someone else is wrong, you carve out room in your life for them, but not To prove to them that they're wrong. Simply to be in relationship with them. When we believe differently as a church, when you see differences from somebody else, our natural inclination ought to be to run and embrace them, not to push away. But again, churches get divided because we're different. That means you got one person with a charismatic background who when they have music, all of a sudden they're waving flags and spinning in circles and talking in tongues and half the group falls over. You've got a reformed Presbyterian who thinks that's nuts. (laughs) And we ought to make space for one another. Now, in 1 Corinthians 8, the opposite problem was happening. You had the Gentiles who many came from a pagan religion. And in the city of Corinth, the priests would come and every morning they would bless all the food in the open-air market, especially they would bless the meat in all the open-air market. And so people who came from the pagan religions would decide that we're not going to eat meat, we're not going to eat that particular meat because it has been blessed by pagan priests. The Jews understood there's only one God. There's not another God. There's not another thing that, again, God has made everything clean. Not from a kosher standpoint. They kind of had some trouble with that. But from a pagan standpoint, they understood that. And so Paul, again, speaks to the weak in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. We're only going to read a couple verses from here. But this is what he says to them. 1 Corinthians 8, 10, and 11. If anyone sees, for if anyone sees you who have knowledge or who are strong, who are not weak, eating in an idol's temple which is okay for you because, again, you don't have that problem. Will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother from whom Christ died. In other words, and if someone sees you doing that, here's the problem. You might be right, but in your rightness, you encourage someone to defile their own conscience, and in defiling their own conscience, you destroy their faith now. Let me tell you why diversity is so incredibly important. In Romans, because of the Jews' background, they were able to see the gospel very cloudy. They didn't understand the full implications of the gospel in their life. But in Corinthians, they were able to see it clearly. In Romans, the Gentiles weren't able to see the gospel, they were able to see the gospel very clearly. But because of their background, in Corinthians, they weren't able to see it clearly. You know what that means? Because of our backgrounds. All of us in areas see Jesus clearly, and all of us in areas see Jesus cloudy, and all of us think we're right in every single area. All of us are right, and all of us are wrong. All of us are weak, and all of us are strong. That because of your background, you're right. And because of your background, you're wrong. And only when you live in community with people who think, act, believe, and are from different backgrounds than you will you know that. Z.S. Lewis kind of talked about this in a a roundabout way in one of his books called The Four Loves. In it, he describes three friends who were real-life friends, and as they got together couple times a week spent time together day after day week after week would spend time together eventually one of the friends dies and as one of that friend one of the friends dies he notices that with his other friend that's still alive there are things that only that friend could bring out of him there are personality characteristics that only that friend could bring out of him his point was this and we've experienced this too by the way you can only know someone as you know them in a group That I might know you in an interpersonal relationship, but when we get a small group of people together, I really understand the fullness of you because there's some things that somebody else can bring out of your personality. There's some things that people can bring out of my personality that I don't see unless I see you in a group. So his point was this. We are only fully known when we're known in a group because we all bring out different characteristics of each individual. If that's true of humans, how much more true is that of an infinitely complex God. You will never know Jesus fully until you see him through the eyes of other people. You will never know. I will never know. We will never see Jesus fully. There are areas where we see him crystal clear, and there are areas where it is so cloudy and complex. And we don't know which is which until we enter into community. You see, diversity is both the problem and the solution. It is both the difficulty and the prize. It is both the problem, the thing that's difficult in, in, in reality to, gra- to wrestle with and to grasp with because we're all different and I just think and they just think. And it's also the only way that we will ever see Jesus fully and completely. It's through the eyes of other people. Now, let me just say this. With this idea, it is very, very easy to talk about, but very difficult to live out, that we will never see Jesus fully without each other. And at the end, kind of of, as he wraps this up, he gives us, and so this is how. You do that. Yeah, you invite them in. Yeah, you carve out space. Yeah, you don't have an agenda. And by the way, the reason the relationship is so important is because almost none of us are ever changed by facts. We're almost always influenced by relationships. Very few of us are ever really influenced by facts. You can hear facts. I can hear facts. We talked about this last week. The nature of belief is when I hear facts, most times facts don't change me. Most times facts cause me to dig my heels in deeper. But do you know what we've all been influenced by? We've all been changed by? Relationships. As you engage in diversity of community, you just might be changed and realize you were wrong in the process. So he says, So this is how this works. This is how this works. You got to get this. Okay. This is it for sure. I'm I'm, a little bit over time at this point. So, (laughs) classic pastor. So, chapter 15, verse 5. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accordance with Christ Jesus. In other words, I want you to live in in harmony with one another. That together, verse 6, this is the goal of this, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, that we would live in harmony and oneness and unity with each other and God would be glorified through that. Verse 7, therefore, welcome one another, carve out space, make space for people who may not be right. Even though they're not right, I want you to carve out space. And this is why. Just as Christ has welcomed you. For the glory of God. In other words, Jesus didn't come to planet Earth because we were right. He didn't come to planet Earth because we were good. He didn't come to planet Earth because we were so desirable. He thought, oh my gosh, they are so right. I can't wait to send my son to die for those people who are so accurate. God saw us, not just in our wrongness, frankly, in our rebellion against Him and are knowing what we ought to have done, but have all fallen short of his glory. He says, I'm going to send my son. And he, on the cross, is going to take the sin of the world that anybody and everybody, no matter your background, no matter where you're from, no matter your molehill or mountain of sin that you've accumulated in your life, that anybody and everybody, no matter your nationality, no matter your ethnicity, no matter your socioeconomic makeup, that anybody and everybody has ultimate forgiveness through Jesus. And we aren't simply supposed to carve out room for each other because God said so. It's because it's what God did for us. That in spite of the fact that we never should have lived, we should never have access to God in relational connection with him, he still sent his son because he so loved the world. And the reason we invite each other in is not to pose and impose our thoughts and how right we are, is to simply love the person who may be different than us. And in doing so, perhaps, we'll be changed in the process. Perhaps, we'll see Jesus more clearly in the process. And perhaps, what the world is waiting for is a church, a group of Christians, Who, in spite of their differences, embraces, carves out space for, is relationally tied in with each other. As we, as a family and as a community, live wholly for the kingdom and for the glory of God. So let me finish with this for real, finish. Here's how we know if we're guilty of this. Here's, here's just how I was thinking as I was studying and preparing. This is the part where I say, this is, this, is, this is how God convicted me of this. So let me just ask this question to you that I felt like God was pressing on me. Who were the last five people that you invited over to your house for dinner? Who were the last five people that you invited over to your house for dinner? Were they like you? If so, like me, we have some work To do. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, God, thank you so much for this time that we have together. God, we just are terribly inconsistent at this. We just aren't good at it. Many of us, we just uh, associate with people who are like us. Honestly, it's easier. Honestly, it's more convenient. It substantiates what we think and what we believe. God, would you change our heart to love, to embrace, to bear, to carve out time? space, relational capacity, intentionally engaging folks who aren't like us don't come from the same background and the same thought process. God, I pray that you would bring a unity to your body like we have not seen before, as we aren't divided by our differences, but embrace one another because of them that we would all see you more clearly, Jesus, be transformed to the likeness of you, our heavenly Father, and that ultimately you would be glorified in us and through us as we embrace one another and see you more clearly. In the name of Jesus, we ask this. Amen.